This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I also should note I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trades Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We have special guests here in Philadelphia, Perth Toll of Freedom Indexing, Life and Liberty Indexes, uh, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. They've come together to work together on some unique new exposures. Um, so Perth, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got so passionate about this new concept that you're working on. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be here. Um, so a little, so my background, so I grew up in both China and the U.S., and uh, some of your Listeners may have heard the story before from our pre- previous show on this. Um, so I grew up in, in China in the U.S. Um, and after college went back to Hong Kong and lived and worked there for a while. When I was back in Hong Kong, I saw a lot of the differences that freedom made in markets in China markets versus Hong Kong markets and also uh, versus U.S. markets. And that's when it really opened my eyes to, hey, freedom matters um, to markets and to society. And um, when I came back to the U.S., I started working at Fidelity, and I was at Fidelity as a financial advisor for about 10 years. Um, a lot of my clients wanted to invest in China and um, in emerging markets. Um, and then I had a lot of clients who didn't want to have exposure to some of these more autocratic countries like China and Russia, um, but still wanted emerging markets exposure. Um, I myself didn't want to invest in emerging markets in a way that gave, gave me 33 to 35% China like uh like most of the market cap weighted emerging markets funds uh, do or indexes do. So, um, so, so that's really the, the basis of why we created the life and Liberty freedom 100 emerging markets index. Very interesting. And so that, and it's interesting because as you think about some of the transition in general emerging markets indexes, I mean, China has been growing in weight. They've been issuing you know, a lot of these new tech companies been growing in prominence and MSCI this year is adding more A share. So maybe they're 30% today, but that's because they only own a very small amount of A shares. Now it's gradually including, you know, growing and they, I want to say in a few different transitions, we'll get up to 20% of their inclusion factor. But even that, like, so it's going to grow. One of the big questions yeah. for cap weight indexes is going to be how are they going to end up getting to 50% China? Like, will that people still want that? And now freedom, your freedom <laughs> index is zero. It's an interesting, like, as you're talking to people, how do people think about the benchmark risk of you got the market that's big China, but yeah. if you're freedom oriented, big question on China. Yeah. So being freedom weighted, having freedom as the only factor on our country selection and weights does have some exposures that uh, are very different from what you would be normally used to or expect in a, like a market cap weighted situation. So we have, like you said, zero China exposure, um, whereas most of the other indices that are market cap weighted have about you know thirty to thirty five percent. So um, you would think that there's a lot of tracking error, but actually, happy accident is we have a high exposure to Taiwan and South Korea. So mm. Taiwan and South Korea are the biggest holdings, um, and they have you know very high high um, correlation to China markets. So it gives us actually very low tracking error, but still high active share. Um, so yeah, so it's a, definitely going to be a different exposure than these other these other emerging markets uh, strategies. So Wes, now we, you've talked about some emerging markets um, and whether or not you're a believer in emerging markets or a non-believer, and you've been skeptical somewhat, but now you're working with Perth on this one. What, what's your high level thought on, on general and then freedom, freedom weighted? Yeah. So first I'll just talk about Perth. So I say Perth has the passion. 
And as you know, we're obviously doing quant geek, like uber weirdo strategies. Yeah, this is not really in our wheelhouse typically. But, you know, as a former Marine officer and and half my team is also in the service, we obviously love freedom. And, you know, I think Purse Awesome has this incredible passion for what I call ESG for libertarians. So we just wanted to partner up with her because I believe in the ethos of freedom. And I thought... um, for emerging markets, there there is, I think, a credible investment case to be made that if you have good economic and political freedoms, that generally lays the foundation for stronger economic growth, healthier you know economies, less risks that you know, like in China, for example, they just say, hey, that private property you thought you had, guess what? It's not actually private. We actually own it, and now your business is worth zero. And so I just feel that if you're going to do emerging markets using freedom as a measure seems like a reasonable way of going about it. When you, when you, so Perth, when you think about the current dynamics, I mean, so much of the market fears today. I mean, now the market's climbed this wall of worry, but you know, at the end of last year you had this big sell off and, and certainly, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the trade negotiation, but how do you look at from everything going on global, globally today with that perspective of trade dynamics with the U S and China, any unique Mm -hmm. perspectives on that? Yeah, so as far as trade, the way that we would look at that is trade is good for a market. And if a market has the ability to do free trade with other places, that's good. If they don't, that's bad. So if we impose tariffs on, say, another an emerging market, that's bad for us. It doesn't affect them as much because they, they have other supply chains um, and other places they can go for customers and so forth. Um, but if they retaliate and impose tariffs on back on us, then that's bad for them. So um, free trade is one of the economic freedom metrics that we use. Um, And it's a pretty big one. It has a lot of sub variables in there as well, like tariffs, non-tariffs, things like that. Um, So let me interrupt you. This leaves an interesting sense. So are you going to do a global version? And (laughs) in the global version of this freedom index, where is the U.S.? Yeah, the U.S. on the on the. On the, so we use, okay, so I should go back and, and talk about our data providers. We use data from the Fraser Institute, the Cato Institute, and the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. And this is their human HFI, the Human Freedom Index and data set, which includes both personal freedoms and economic freedoms. And personal freedoms, I break down into the rights to life and the rights to liberty. Economic freedoms, I break down to, it's, it's basically the rights to property. So life, liberty, and property. Um, and so as far as globally, the U.S. ranks on their scoring system number 18 out of 159. So It's like the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Is that the life, liberty, and property? Property yes. is our pursuit of happiness. Is there a value judgment there? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that just comes from where our metrics uh, are classified. So, yes. So life is like things like terrorism, trafficking, torture. Liberty is rule of law, due process. Freedom of media, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of uh, assembly, and so forth. Um, property or economic freedoms are taxation, rule of uh, taxation, um, sound monetary policy, uh, ease of doing business, uh, free trade, and so forth. Yeah. Another thing to add, it just put, uh, I guess, perspective on it, is this is all about relative freedom. There, there's clearly no one that's yes. perfect out there. It's just a matter of, like, are you little bit better than people that are really bad. And, and so it's not like the United States is perfect on, you know, these freedom scores, but it's certainly going to be way higher than China is or, you right. know, other countries out there. So it, nobody's perfect. This is about being in the relative most free areas out there. Yeah, that's where it gets to like, all right, so you get these scores and you have a freedom score. And it's like, how do you then create an index to like build in these relative weights and so much. Now I know Wes, your mission is high tracking error, no pain, no gain. You got to be concentrated, yeah. active in value momentum. And in a way with the China bet, you have a similar concept here. Yeah. Although you mentioned that sort of that the Taiwan and Korea gives you a close proxy. Yeah. It's a good, the Taiwan and Korea do act as a China proxy in this. So that was just a happy accident just because Taiwan and, and South Korea are two of the freest emerging markets along with, um, Chile and Poland. Poland with its own problems now. They were number one in 2017, dropped to number four in 2018. Um, so yeah, it's just exactly like Wes said. It's it's a it's a relative um, to your peers 
kind of uh, scale. So there's no perfect, perfectly free country, and especially in emerging markets, a lot of these countries are still autocracies, um, and some of them do make it into the index, like the Philippines is in there, and we get a lot of questions about that and why is this in here with this murderous regime in there? Um, they actually have pretty high economic freedom, um, so you know, the, it, it just having a higher overall country score from the data provider does give them that. You know, a little bit of weight in the index. So, so talk. So, is it, so when you say life, liberty, and property, are they all three equally blended to the one yes. freedom score? So it's like a li- it's one third, so one third. The the three actually the personal and the economic are fifty fifty. Okay. And then the personal includes life and liberty. I just break it down that way. The right. data providers don't do that. Um, and then every sub variable is equal weighted. So there's seventy nine sub variables complicated total yes so they do all of this from third party objective data and they quantify it if it's qualified data and everything is a, an objective third party quantified metric so i can't game the system if i try it i can't say oh i don't want china in there so can you score them lower mm. no I have, I have they have complete independence and i have complete independence as well so yeah, it's a completely quantified system, and, and uh, uh, I, just, yeah. I just take the overall score. But every single variable is equal weighted. And the reason why they do that, um, Jim Gortney is the one who came up with their original um, definition of freedom. And he said that freedom is freedoms are like parts of an automobile. So you can't have just a steering wheel with no transmission. You can't just have one freedom without the other. The whole car would not run. So that's why they equal weight everything, because everything is equally important. One thing that uh, just from hanging around a lot of these people that work on this data for Perth, it's actually very enlightening because a lot of things that you hear about countries in the media are often politicized. Like I remember the other day they were talking about Denmark and they're like, why does that have so much economic freedom when that's usually held up as like the beacon of socialism? Because they got, you know, they have super high taxes and a lot of people that are left-leaning tend to hold them up as like socialism works. And But he's like, when you actually look at the data, they have actually remarkably high economic freedoms. They're not that great on tax rates, but you can set up a business in a day. So I just find that when you actually do it with these objective quantitative measures, a lot of things that are in this index and in this process, you're like, well, why is that in there? But when you actually look at the underlying data, you're like, oh. That actually is has really high freedom, despite what you hear in the press a lot of the times. So I, I just find it fascinating what, what a lot of these metrics are actually highlighting that maybe go under the radar of you know because of politics and everything. Now yeah. you, you guys have talked about uh, and and your your co- your colleague Wes Ryan Curlin has talked about the trend for ESG investing. Yeah, and and he's a little skeptical, but sure, it's nice to see Alf Architect well, is leaning into a ESG strategy. Said. Earth is your ESG. Yeah, ESG liber- by default. Yeah, <laughs> Not what by um, what uh, a gentleman said at uh, one of the data intrinsic, providers. Intrinsic ESG. Right. <laughs> this is the foundation for all other ESG out there. Because if you don't have economic freedoms and people don't have individual rights, if you look at countries or, or regions where they have high economic and political freedoms, those are all the places that actually support all these uh, like other ESGs, like, hey, better energy policy, better food policy, or whatever it is, you don't see that in like China, yeah. right? Um, so, so his argument, this is the foundational ESG that's out there. Like you got to have this one at a base before you start talking about you know, all these other things. And, and you can see how all, a number of the freedom scores go to S and G directly in terms of societal setups and governance setups. Yeah. Anything on, you mentioned some of the environment, but is, is there a default tilt when you screen, with, with, with the way you create it? I'm just curious, is it overweight energy, underweight energy, if you think about yeah, the so, polluters? Yeah, we, we actually exclude state-owned enterprises. So we do get a little bit of uh, less energy companies than in emerging markets than we would if we didn't exclude state-owned enterprises, as you know. For sure, like yeah. Brazil and Russia. Exactly. And, well, we we don't have China. Brazil and Russia exposure, but if yeah, but still some of the others as well. So um, so yeah, so and and also to to kind of piggyback on what Wes just mentioned there, as far as um, this being a foundation, one of the reasons why these people started measuring freedom in this way. Um, and the reason why we have this data set to use is that they wanted to see the relationship between these freedoms, like economic freedom, personal freedom, and other desired outcomes like um, lifespan, environment, um, 
growth in GDP, uh, you know, coming out of poverty, things like that. So, so they were able to, after they developed this data set, they were able to measure the relationship between these desired outcomes and freedom itself. So there's a very high correlation between freedom and better environment. There's a high correlation between economic freedom and the other freedoms, political and civil freedoms. There's a high correlation between um, freedom and democracy. So all of these things can now be measured um, and do have high correlation to these, these desired outcomes. Um, and that was one of the, the purposes of this project as well. Let me just reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Perth Toll of Life and Liberty Index behind a new freedom-oriented emerging market strategy. Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, who's collaborating with her on the strategy. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And so it's interesting. So you brought up on once you have this freedom country, you're sort of implementing with a ex-state-owned concept, which is something I'm passionate about as yes. well. I think the two of us may be the only ones as passionate as we are today. <laughs> um, what, 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 in your view, as you were thinking about, all right, so I could buy these countries. I'm going to change the weights from the traditional indexes. What led you down the path of the, the ex-state-owned universe path. So one of the things in economic freedom um, variables is the size of government. And so the, the more government um, interference you have in an economy, the lower the score for that country. So this is just a way for us to bring that economic freedom theme all the way down to the constituent level. And do you, do you notice, uh, I mean, I, I, I could talk about it too, but do you notice a trend of what types of companies, we talked a little bit about energy materials, but do you notice the type yeah. of tilts you get once you do that? So we get a little bit higher technology, a little lower financials, a little lower energy. Yeah. Yeah. So could I, And probably more tilts to consumer. Yes. Like consumer. consumer well, a lot of the consumer discretionary yes. blends with technology, whether these internet companies and... Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned before not having as much Brazil or... It, what are the other countries that you tend to be underweight besides China? So we have no China, no Russia, uh, no Egypt, no Saudi Arabia, no Brazil as of this year. They were recently um, excluded. So we, yeah. So in Brazil, the, the reason why Brazil was excluded, excuse me, this year is because they, um, these these scorers, they, they measure the, the um, level of, personal safety and security in a country. So if you can't walk down the street without getting shot at, then you're not really free is, is their, their, um, their view on that. So Brazil has some of the highest homicide rates in the world, and that really dropped down their score this year. So that, um, that is why they were ex ex excluded from um, mm. the index. Yeah. And, so that's and, a notable one. And Russia is also... Russia is excluded. Yeah. Human freedom scores. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And Saudi Arabia is another notable because MSCI is currently adding Saudi Arabia into their emerging markets index. It hasn't been in there before. It was recently promoted. And so right now, as a lot of things are going on in Saudi Arabia in the news all the time, um, you know that human freedoms are very bad there. Um, women's freedoms are very bad in some of these countries in that region as well. So it's half of your labor force is treated like not even human. So um, even though they, they score pretty high on economic freedom, their human freedoms are very poor, including women's freedoms are very poor. If you're half of your population is has no rights whatsoever, you know that's going to score very low on our on our scoring system. Um, but they made great progress. I just want to say they they're the making great strides. The relatives are moving up. Yes, so I think that there's a lot of hope for these countries like China and Saudi Arabia, and I hope that they make it into the index one day. What what's the refresh? Is it a you mentioned twenty seventeen twenty eighteen is an annual refresh annual, on the yeah. on the list and, and when did those those annual refreshes take place? January. So we'll always we'll always have the Perth toll <laughs> annual rebalancing in January. Look forward to seeing yes. who's going up and down the index list. So Wes, when you think about the academic research on factors, and this mm -hmm. this is sort of like a new factor, and people always say like, is our factors yeah. done? You know, and is there anything yeah. new and creative? What's do you have a base rate? expectation for how this factor can perform like if you were saying long term where yeah. do you where do you rank this factor in terms of factors for emerging markets well th this one's super interesting because to purse point one of the issues is how do you get nice granular detailed data with a long time series the, the answer is you don't really right. and so it's academics have tried to show empirically that this idea that you want to own you know, assets in countries that are more free, 
you know, the hypothesis that, hey, they should do better because you have better foundations. But the, the evidence is somewhat weak, not because the hypothesis is maybe not strong, but I just think the data access and availability right. hasn't been there. So this is one of those things where I think you need to, if you're going to do it, the thesis is more on just the common sense of the thesis versus like going out there and getting 200 years of data that showed definitively that this works better than, you know, buying things in countries that'll put you in jail tomorrow because you don't like the president. Um, so so my, my thesis here is more qualitative in just economic foundations and, and common sense versus pointing to a bunch of data. But I, I think that actually is a good thing because a lot of times when you invest in any factor, it really shouldn't be about how good the back test was. It should be how good is the intuition, what is the economic equilibriums that make this a good investment case. And I think the that's certainly the case here with freedom. It just makes sense. Like, okay, your citizens are free. They have economic freedoms. They have private property rights. That probably lays a good foundation for good incentives and trying to earn more money, grow higher earnings for a long time. Um, so so I think it's it's common sense to many people that this is probably a reasonable idea. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it gets into one of the most interesting debates on ESG investing generally, which is, are people sacrificing returns for these values that they want to live up to? Or can you integrate it in a way that's adding value? And I think some of the people are skeptical, like, hey, is ESG a value contributor? Part of it's like the data. The data is not there. It's mm -hmm. hard to show yeah. almost exactly like this conversation. But this gets into, if I've push you and say, all right, well, what is the estimate? I mean, I could give you some yeah. attribution I've done. So there's really two factors in what Perth's doing. She's got the country tilting and the ex-state-owned tilting. And, mm -hmm. and, and I just pulled up a chart that, that we've done on some of our indexes looking at attribution of the MSCI index going back for state-owned and non-state-owned. Now, again, the time series of this is not great. There's more non-state-owned recently. Mm -hmm. um, but if I look back since 2007, so now we have almost 12 years, state-owned companies are negative 50 basis points a year since 2007, and non-state-owned companies are 3% a year since 2007. Yeah. <laughs> and state-owned companies are 30% of MSCI's index. So that tilt alone is a pretty big tilt that yeah. you could remove that. Yeah. And then there's an addition, and that, you know, if you say that's a 400 basis point spread almost, and that's 30%, that alone is, yeah. is almost like 100 basis points yeah. maybe. And then you got a freedom index mm -hmm. on top of that within this, this selection. Yeah, yeah, we do expect long-term alpha from this. I just don't uh, want to present it that way in the beginning because right. it, it takes a long time to show that. Yeah. I mean, of course, freer countries, you know, are expected to perform better, more sustainably. They recover faster from drawdowns because they're more flexible, more innovative to respond to market trends. Um, and they use their human and economic capital or their capital and labor more efficiently. And you can see that in the ex-state-owned as well, like on the security level, that the less government interference you have, the better um, outcomes. So, yeah, we do expect that that to trend in the long run but um it for now it's it's a, a, a different exposure that gives you very different um holdings than your um other market cap weighted emerging market indexes i mean one of the things yeah. i struggle with on that is all right so some when i when i talk when i quoted that 400 basis point spread between state and non-state mm -hmm. and that's just taking msci and taking them exactly yes. as they are which obviously has a huge sector component to it yes. right because which is Yo. essentially the state-owned is, is essentially a portfolio of energy and banks. Yes. Not, you know, probably two-thirds of it is energy and banks, maybe yeah. more. And then you've got the tech and consumer. So it's not so different than value growth, right? It's, yeah. It's growth is beat value. Yep. I would say don't be underperformed, non-state owned. So one of the things I would say, like, to play devil's advocate for this, um, just so it's a well-rounded uh, understanding, yeah, debate, is, well, the other argument is, well, Russia is also 3PE. Right. So, you know, what you buy is a measure. We got MEV versus West. Yeah, the quality. <laughs> MEV loves Russia. Price. Um, and it could be the case that freedom is maybe already priced in fairly. And, you know, that that's a debate we can always have. And no one's ever proven empirically yeah. one way or the other. But there, there's certainly that element. But it actually gets to this whole CAPE ratio. I bet if you did yeah. a global, if you stack ranked the global lowest CAPEs, yeah. Russia, Brazil, both non-freedom yeah, countries. Sure. Yeah. U.S. is outperforming. Everybody says the U.S. market's expensive. Well, it might be expensive for a good reason. Yeah, freedom and rule of law is priced mm -hmm. in potentially. So, so that's why I always, when people ask me about this in particular, I'm like, well, 
if if like I said, ESG for libertarians. If you believe in investing in something because that's what you want to believe in, then that's what you should do. And even if you get efficient market returns from it, but at the margin you get a, a benefit from knowing that you didn't contribute to investing in places that you know hate women and you know want to murder them or whatever you know that's also a benefit even even if we just assume away any potential excess returns um so i think that's like a good baseline to go in with and then if you get the benefit that markets don't fully appreciate freedom you know you could potentially get this additional alpha over time as well um but that's something that's tbd we'll find out yeah actually just to just to kind of um reiterate something there it is, we do get a lot of libertarian um, interest, but when I started this index, I didn't know anything about the polit- politics side of it. I didn't know what a libertarian really was. Now I do, obviously, and I'm very, you know, libertarian leaning. So, but um, this is, what I see as this is, it's not really a left or right or libertarian or any other type of product. It's just if you believe in freedom. You know, for me, it comes from a human, human freedom aspect more than anything else, um, coming from a, a living growing up in a communist society and then coming and growing up in a capitalist society afterwards and just seeing the difference that made in my life and in these types of societies themselves and the markets um is what inspired me to do this so um so so yeah i mean the human freedoms really everyone can i think agree with and uh it's it's not really meant to be like a political solution Behind the Markets here on SiriusXM 132 we're talking with Perth Toll Life and Liberty Indexes Wes Gray CEO of Alpha Architect I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and uh, sort of an interesting discussion for the first half of the show, all about how Perth came to this freedom concept and 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 just the issues around it. Um, and we, we talked a little bit about some examples Perth on different countries, but maybe why don't we continue on some of the threads on countries, you know, anecdotes around some of the countries that that are have been excluded. We want to give uh, a few other interesting examples. We talked about Brazil and Russia and China. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the next most interesting country to talk about? So Turkey is an interesting one. They um, were on a very good trajectory freedom-wise for a while. And then um, a more autocr- autocratic uh, government came into power. And we have a rule in, in our methodology that kicks out a country if it's been in the index, only if it drops at a certain uh, at a certain speed or momentum. So if the freedom momentum declines at a very fast speed, then it gets kicked out of the index based on this rule. It's like a cell discipline. And Turkey is the only one that has ever triggered this rule. And that was in the beginning of 2018. So the, the data showed uh, by the end of 2017 that they had dropped at a speed that would trigger this um, cell discipline rule and they got kicked out of the index. So we had no turkey since January of 2018 in the live index. Freedom momentum, Wes. She's talking your lingo here. She's I got know. A way to get I, I moment, like it. Momentum it, into it. And to be clear, per just my understanding is that that can happen off the annual cycle, right? So if no, dictator comes we, in. we only do it okay, gotcha. at rebalance. Gotcha. Yeah, because the, the data, the freedom data only comes out once a year. Okay. So gotcha. that data wouldn't show anything, you know, throughout the year. If a, data, a dictator comes in like in the middle of the year, we're not like a real time. This is not going to mm-hmm. be a real time change. Um, it's not that active. Um, and usually with these things, um, there is a lag in data time because we are using third party objective data. And that's the... Yep price you pay for that um however so a couple years ago you met some of our our data people so mm-hmm. a couple years ago we had these freedom meetings every year a couple years ago um the the polish delegate told me that um hey we there's a there's a a, a kind of a crazy government that's going to come in power in Poland um, and they're going to have constitutional majority um, and things are going to go a little bit nuts. But you won't see any um, effect of that on the market for two or three years because these things take time. And that's always been the case. So whenever a, a new government or some kind of policy change comes in, um, it takes two or three years for it to actually hit the market. Um, and so it happened just as he said, Poland was the best performing emerging market um, in 2017. And then they dropped uh, f- three places on our on our country rankings um, from first top country holding to fourth top country holding um, in 2018. 
Um, so, so yeah, it took a few years for after this new government came into power for that to show up in markets. I mean, politics and elections, well, po- politics and elections, politics and markets are always a interesting discussion. And we had the U.S. elections, and there was a lot of anxiety about the uncertainty that Trump would bring and how it would compare it to other markets. And you get the you know, low taxes, supporting markets versus the Democrat versus Republicans. And what, what are they going to be good? Well, a lot of the, the best cases when you have a mixed government because they don't do anything, you know. So yeah. there's a lot of interesting research. Now, on one of the other markets that has been responding quite well this year, and actually they just had a big election. We've actually been talking about it on our show because we've had um, – I mean, at Wisdom Tree, mm-hmm. I have one strategy, particularly bullish on India. Yes. And Modi came back. He's second time prime minister. It's actually the biggest democratic election in history, over a billion people voting. Yes. And, and Gaurav happens to really love India. He's sort of bullish. But yes. we were looking at, at your index, and I don't think you have a lot of India. You don't. We don't have a lot of India. India is in this year on a technicality as well. We have a rule that if a company is in, or sorry, if a country is in the index, it cannot be eliminated from the index until it hits a much lower threshold for freedom score and for um, size of country. So, um, so India is in there on that technicality this year, or they wouldn't be in there at all. Actually, that's why it's such a such a low weight. Um, and the the reason why that is for India, India is you know as you know the world's largest democracy. Um, I love that India is in there, and I, I do think there's a huge potential in India. Um, and I and India is uh, by our metrics very much freer than some of the other larger emerging markets like China. Um, the, the, what's holding them down right now is their, their uh, trade protectionism. So they have a lot of trade protection and it's very nationalistic um, as far as their, their trade policy. So, um, so that is the only thing that is, that's really keeping them down on their score. I mean, they do have a lot of other issues like you know, women's freedoms. There's some issues there, but it's not like relatively speaking to the other emerging markets, it's not that bad. But it's their trade protectionism compared to some of these other markets that's keeping them down. And that's, and that's from a, I think the, the U.S. has talked about changing them from a developing status where they're sort of getting to export to the U.S. sort of relatively low with no sort of privileged. And they're yeah. talking about ending that. So, so they have a lot of taxes on imports. What, now, a lot of their big imports is oil and gold. It's a very commodity. You know, they, they need imports. But um, I, do you know where their taxes are? Not it's not a. You just know that they're low tax country. On, on your score, it's a low low tax country. No, it's a it's a it's a high. It's a low scoring country. Low because scoring the, country because of the trade taxes. protectionism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, not not taxes, but trade trade protection. Ah. Uh, so like tariffs, non tariff, um, trade barriers, movement of capital and goods and people, um, around the country and across borders. I, I think they don't don't they require if you start up a business it has to be jointly owned with. An yeah. Indian counterpart. Ease of doing these, business. Yeah, all these competitiveness and, and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and this is another actually example of why I really like this data that Perch got because I, my wife and I were in India for about a month. I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. Really? Actually, maybe 10 years ago now. Uh, but all I remember was like, this place is great. Like, there's all <laughs> these young people. It felt very free. Everyone like works so hard. This is definitely like, going to be the next you know united states but then when, when you get down to the actual cold hard facts you know it's less of a clear picture than my anecdotal experience so uh, I, I just always find it fascinating what my personal view is on a country just yeah. from my anecdotes compared to the actual you know collective data on the subject um, i love india though i think it has so much potential and and sure. it, it is in the index which means yeah. it's one of the freer emerging markets so it's mm-hmm. above average so i don't want to be you know oh, sitting here good. picking on india because it, it's it's got so much potential there and it's just the the population you're right is young and vibrant and uh highly motivated the, that ease of doing business so we, we did a podcast with Srinivas through vadan tai who's the head of research at jerome levy forecasting center one of our fellow mm-hmm. fintwit heavy users and discussers and he, he talks a lot about india there and Gorov and and we this this was the key issue we talked about of you know the ease of doing business and where can they there's like sort of a few major market reforms land reform labor market reform that they're questioning will Modi have the strength to do I mean he did some very unpopular things last year mm-hmm. tax system went to this unified they have 29 states and they sort of went to a one cohesive tax structure across these states which was a hard thing. And then they demonetized. They took cash, corrupt cash out of the yes. system, which was a very big statement in trying to improve right. 
you know, sort of tax collections and remove corruption. So it's like it's getting towards a better score. Like the trend that way should be trending positively. But they've got, you know, they have rules around you don't want to have more than 20 people because you can't fire anybody. It's And it is hard. It's very a number of things that are inefficient. So we'll see. We'll see if uh, it'll be interesting to keep track of how India scores over time. But the yeah. you know, the markets have liked Modi. It'll be interesting yeah. uh, how how it goes from here. Um, any other stories? I mean, as we we were talking about some of the yeah. the broader anecdotes behind your freedom concept, um, and you had a few different stories on on what it meant to what inspired you to start get back, getting back to freedom as a concept. Yeah, so I, I think one of the stories we were talking about on break is is when I was in China growing up as a child, I remember, um, so I'll tell, just tell a couple, but the, when I was in China growing up, I remember there was a time when um, I was probably like four or five, I don't know. Um, in my grandfather's library, I found a book that um, was about two people in a garden. And it was probably a Bible now that I look back on it and know what, what that was probably about. Um, but my grandmother got super mad at him for you know, me having discovered that and I never saw it again. My grandfather's life was um, saved by a Christian missionary doctor um, in World War II. So it's very possible that he had a Bible. He had a bust of this doctor in his office, um, in his library. So, um, but because there's the lack of freedom of religion there, we could have gotten in trouble for that. And so um, everybody was very mad at him for, for letting me discover that and I never saw it again. So that's one story I remember from when I was little. I also do remember... Um, adults saying like when we were talking about politically sensitive things adults would say no hey don't say that around the children they could repeat it and we could get in trouble you know because anybody could become a spy you know in in this type of society so um, people ask your children you know what's been discussed at the dinner table and things like that so you know and and there's a lot of and we're on fintwit very very actively Um, there's also I was telling Wes about last night China twit and I'm on Mm -hmm. a lot of China human rights Twitter and there's so many stories that people remember in their childhood of like one one girl she you know wrote down what the family discussed at dinner in her diary and the next morning the diary was confiscated everything was inked out and her mother had basically blacked everything out that she had written just to keep the family safe and this is a girl that was born 10 years after me so you know very recent past and so um, a lot of these things. And then also when I went back to Hong Kong after college, um, we traveled to Shanghai often. And my friend Maggie in Shanghai, this is a story that I've told before, if if anyone's heard my prior podcasts. Um, I had a friend named Maggie who we were both 23. We were the exact same age and we had a lot of things in common. And she was just like any other of my friends um, who were in the U.S., except in China, she had no... Um, existence on paper she doesn't exist on paper there's no record of her birth there's no school records there's no hospital records no um state benefits she doesn't exist on paper because she was born the second child and her family registered her brother for school because he was a boy and there's a you know it's a very patriarchal society over there still and we can only have one child due to the one child policy a lot of times this happens if there's a boy and a girl the girl just gets left out and she's actually one of the lucky ones there's 30 million missing women in China currently. So due to the one child policy, and that's a policy that changed the trajectory and the culture of my generation. So that's one of the things that made me realize, hey, policies matter, governance matters, individual rights and freedom matters to a society and to a market. Now on that particular one child policy, it seems to be trending differently now, right? The uh, Li Chen has talked about the, the stamp of China this year is the, yes. is the three little pigs that they're trying to encourage. <laughs> Three pigs, three kids. I mean, that doesn't change overnight, but it's a mentality change. Yeah. So I think this is definitely a big step in improvement. However, I do think that instead of telling people how many children they should have, because they've done this before, they just swing from one into the other. You know, before the one-child policy, they were telling people to have more children. And then they had the one-child policy. And then after that, it was now the two-child policy. But because of the one-child policy for 30 years, the entire culture has changed and nobody's having two children. Nobody values this as a, as the society anymore. So now they're trying to encourage people to have three. But you know what? If you just give people you know, the freedom to have as many children as they want, that would probably be a better policy in the long run for you know, the 
labor force or for whatever population you're trying to achieve. Wes has three children here. <laughs> I do. I, I, and many times I would not recommend it, actually. Um, so, so I agree with the option to choose is probably a better idea. I don't know. In the car this morning, he was telling Katie about having more. So he was like, hey, oh. we can hold five kids in this car. Oh, that, that's true. But, but my wife is like the Chinese dictator. She makes all the rules. I just follow them. That's how it should be. Exactly. Um, any other sort of thoughts on things that we haven't covered, Perth, as you think about, you know, the, the freedom concept and, and what you want people to, to do? Yeah. So one of the things that I think is interesting is as far as um, some of these countries that are very free, they do a lot of trade with unfree countries. And I get that as an objection quite often. So they say, OK, you have a high weighting in Taiwan, but Taiwan has all these factories in China. I mean, they're kind of interconnected as far as their economy. So aren't you actually directly investing in China? And my answer to that is, yes, they do have a lot of factories in China because that's beneficial to their shareholders and their cost structure. But anytime they want to change that, anytime those benefits go away, they can change that. Um, so, so, so yes. So we don't penalize freer countries for doing trade with unfree countries. Um, we we actually think that that free trade is good. So, so some of these countries that have a high level of trade with China, like uh, Taiwan, like Chile, also has a high level of trade with China. We don't penalize, and also freer countries have the the, the capability and the flexibility to uh, to respond to market trends if. The situation in China becomes so that those benefits go away. They can move. And also in Chile, for example, one of our holdings, SQM, in the index, um, last year saw a big jump in their stock price because they were flexible enough to change from mining copper to mining lithium in response to China's electric car demand. So these countries can benefit from free trade with unfree countries, and we do not penalize them for doing so. So, Wes, we, we talked a lot about the freedom concept. Maybe, maybe we'll switch gears, but any closing thoughts from you on the, uh, the concept? No, I mean, I, I think it's, it's one of those things where a lot of people, it, it's flown under the radar of quants and, and the like because you can't backtest it per se. But I, I think it's one of these things that's just common sense. And, and Josh Brown actually had a nice article recently that, that you mentioned about that where it's just, this is obvious, like, if you have rule of law foundation for, you know, private property rights, you, you're probably going to have a foundation to have an economy that's more robust, more flexible, and has potential for higher growth rates, which in general can lead to better economic outcomes and stock market outcomes. So I can't backtest that, but it, it certainly seems sensible. Yeah. Like, you know, value, buy cheap stuff. That seems like a reasonable long-term investment strategy. Buy freedom. That seems like a we reasonable... Have, we have the back test of history on this. So you can exactly. look at history and look at the countries that have um, become developed markets, that have grown you know, from emerging markets. And, and these are the ones that have protected individual freedoms and the rights to life, liberty, and property. And, uh, and, and then we got the ex-state-owned concept, which, which you and I are going to be leading advocates of. And uh, we'll see. But over time, I think that's also an interesting concept to do. Wes, so on the spirit of freedom and, uh, and, and how Alpha Architect is really behind the March for Freedom, one of the things, an annual event, you've been organizing a lot of finance, Twitter, and, and the broader community to come March for the Fallen. I'm wearing a, a March for the Fallen from 2018 t-shirt here. Tell our, our listeners a little bit about the event, what got you involved in it, and just how, how we're trying to recruit for, for next year's event. Sure. So the, the event was started by a major general, Gronsky, who I've become friends with. And the basic concept is in the name, March for the Fallen. So what's that about? Well, as, as we all know here, like one of the reasons we have individual freedoms and liberties is we have, you know, service members who go out there and, you know, basically put up their lives to defend the Constitution, which a lot of cases gives us these opportunities to live life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's easy in some sense for like the soldier, Marine, Airman, uh, Coast Guard, what have you, to go out there. But what's really difficult is when they, you know, are killed in action, they have the Gold Star families that are left behind. And that's a tragedy. So the March for the Fallen is really about 
it's it's not a charity. It's a living memorial to those who gave it all to help support and recognize the sacrifices for Gold Star families who are always concerned, like, did was my sacrifice worth it? And so we go out there. It's a 28-mile march through the uh, mountains of around Harrisburg there at the National Guard Training Center. And, you know, we encourage as much participation as possible. It's not expensive. It's just, again, an opportunity to recognize those who sacrifice the most for our country and our opportunity to live free, which I know Perth is a huge fan of. That's right. This thing is literally like $25 for the T-shirt. And that's that's all, all the, the financial um, price there is to pay for this because these people are the ones that, that were the real freedom fighters that paid the ultimate price. So we're out there to honor them. And last year we had like, what, 200 people, 200 finance people in our group. Yeah. So there's, there's a huge amount. And a lot of times people get afraid of the 28 miles, which is obviously a long distance yeah. through rugged terrain. But I, I know Perth, you have uh, some right. insights and <laughs> techniques because you're a So I led survivor. the 14 mile contingent last year. And we came in five minutes before Wes came in from his 28 miles with a 40-pound ruck. So that's what we're dealing with here, the vast um, diversification of uh, personal abilities, personal summit. Yeah. So, and this year, yeah, and Bonnie... Your wife, Jeremy's wife, was there as well last year. So the Bonnie method is also recommended here. So what is the Bonnie method? So she did not train at all, not one day. We're not necessarily recommending this, but we're saying it can be done. So no training, and then she went the whole 28 miles. Is that right? Yeah, and she well, she knew I had done it the previous year, and I see everybody on finance Twitter with their their packs and their training and spending five hours training. Yeah. And, you know, I travel a lot for work and I've got, you know, the two kids, so I don't yeah. want to leave the family for the whole weekend. It's hard for me to get that kind of political capital. So yeah. <laughs> I do the regular workouts with Bonnie and, and Wes heavily recruited. Actually, we were at dinner with Lee Chen and Bonnie and Wes convinced Lee Chen to come last year. And Bonnie's like with, with one week before the march. <laughs> come on, Bonnie, you can do it, too. And she's like, oh, we'll see. She, she wanted to go back with you guys, but she kept going. Yeah. And she just did the it. The whole now, 28 miles. Yep. So no now, training. She do, she is in shape and she does do yoga a few times yeah. a week. So it's not that there's zero training, but right. not this three, five hour hiking right. training, which, yes. which yeah. a lot of people do. Well, and a lot of it in all these like officially this is an ultra marathon because it's over 26 miles is it's really a mental thing and and in the march for the fallen like every mile there's a picture of a fallen soldier so it's it's very easy for in your mind to say wow i'm hurting but here's this you know fallen soldier who gave it all for our freedom i I can probably keep going um so so i think it's easy to power through out there because of the the event is just powerful in itself. I mean, my yes. first year, I had never done anything like this. I mean, I, it, it was a, a big push for me to say, can yeah. I get there? Can I do it? And mm-hmm. again, I hadn't trained beyond just trying to meet. Maybe I do two yoga classes back to back, three hours, do a little walking to work. Yeah. But it, uh, it was amazing that you can do it. Yes. And I want to try to recruit more women this year. We had like four women last year total between U.S. and Canada with a barrack of made for, I think, 28 or more. So 60. we had... Oh, made for 60. Yeah. Okay, so we had four women in a barrack made for 60. So we had a lot of room to ourselves, but um, we want more women this year. So Bonnie's yeah. going to be out there on the awesome. march again. We're going to yes. get her yeah. recruiting. My wife of- will be out there. We've already got around 12 to 13 uh, confirmed. So Nice. It's going to be, uh, yet, so we're, we're, we're tripling the female ratio this year. Nice. Uh, and as a statement to my Wisdom Tree listeners, last year there was a firm, a Canadian firm, with like 13 people at the firm and 10 of the people at the firm were there. So yeah. I have a bigger expectation from the Wisdom Tree crowd this year. <laughs> more people coming. We can't. We got to have more than 10 this year. I, I'm with you. I mean, Wisdom Tree, you guys represented well a couple years ago because I think you had some of the top finishers. Last year was a little lax, but this year I'm <laughs> expecting big things from Wisdom Tree. Big outcomes. Yep. Um, any other, Wes, final few-minute countdown here? Any things you're focused on, other things that you think people should stay, stay in tune for? Um, not really. I mean, in, in general, I'm very curious on what happens in the investment world these days where basically anything that's not market cap weighted seems to be getting crushed and not working. And maybe that continues for the next 10 years. Maybe it doesn't. And I don't know the answers, but I'm very interested in seeing where – where the world goes in investing since any quote unquote smart person trade hasn't been working in recent memory. 
Um, and these smart person trades are things like trend, things like value. Sure, like value, momentum, buying small caps, uh, you know, commodity carry. Essentially anything that has, you know, decades and centuries of evidence behind it just hasn't worked. It's been the um, anti-factor. It's been the anti-anything <laughs> except for buying uh, U.S., you know, S&P 500 stocks, uh, you know, past 10 years. So be curious to see what happens in the future. Tech and growth. Tech and growth all the way to the bank. That's what it seems to be uh, in recent memory here. So, But as I said, these things tend to mean revert. And I think there's good economic foundations for why, you know, strategies that have historically worked will, will probably tend to work on average over the long haul out of sample. But, uh, you know, innocent till proven guilty, I guess. And Right now, we're, we're guilty of not working. So um. It's just a lot of whipsaws. I mean, last year was painful On the at the end of the year. It, straight oh, down, yeah. straight up, and then the trend type of strategy is hard to get in, hard to yep. get out. Yep. Yeah, trend falling, which is just the general concept that you want to you know own risk when it's trending, don't own risk when it's not. Uh, it's kind of an insurance policy at some level. It's just gotten annihilated in what they call whipsaws, where you're, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Uh, you know, and that that just is what it is. That that happens historically. It's unfortunate when you actually have to live through it, but and it does suggest that the the market environments that we're currently in certainly seem to be uh, not as healthy as they have been, say, over the last five six years. And and like I said, it's TBD. We'll see what happens in the future. Um, obviously, hope everything's bullish and rosy, but that's not what price signals seem to be saying these days. Well, Wes Perth, uh, I'm glad that we got to do this this show together. Thank you for coming to Philadelphia suburbs here, Perth. Wes, always a pleasure to have you back on behind the markets. We got to keep you back in the rotation a little bit more often. But uh, yeah, love to be here, and let's let freedom ring. Let Thanks freedom for having ring. us. Um, yes. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.